G'day and welcome to episode 26 of The Other Side Australia for March 10 to 16, 2021. I'm Damien Curry, and this is your weekly shortcut to the news and views of the week from a sensible classical liberal perspective. Coming to you on our discernible platform, all the usual podcast platforms and the Good Source channel. This week, the evil Christian right are coming to take over the world. And according to Aussie mainstream media, we should all be terrified. Is sexism killing feminism? While the Brittany Higgins case had feminists saying enough, is Christian Porter's character assassination just as much of a cultural turning point for men? Carolyn DeRusso will join me for a really interesting interview where we cover a lot of ground on that topic. A fascinating journey into the history of Western culture in our liberalism education segment today. Some very good news on the political front for centre-right liberals for a change. We'll tell you about that. Our usual comedy segment, and I am absolutely proud to guarantee that this episode is a Meghan and Harry free zone. Hooray. Let's go. Well, this week marks one year back in Australia for me after living overseas for 20 years. I started this podcast six months ago because I was concerned about the state of public discourse in the country. Six months later, I am sadly more concerned than ever. The lack of diversity is what worries me. The only kind of diversity that really matters, the diversity of opinion, is lacking at the ABC, in the mainstream media, our schools, our government, our corporate HR departments. And the disconnect from a large section of the population is truly disturbing too. The quiet Australian phenomenon of the 2019 election seems to have taught the cultural elites in our universities, media and government nothing. It seems they had five seconds of self-reflection on May 19 two years ago and then decided, ah, it's all too hard to listen to anyone who doesn't share my worldview. And they went right back to doing what they were doing before. This may explain why half the country has tuned out from mainstream media. Lack of tolerance on differing views is also disturbing to me. Sure, there are extremists on issues that should be ignored. But in this country, people don't just disagree like in America and other places. In this country, anyone who doesn't toe the line on one very narrow left-wing narrative is described immediately as a right-wing nutjob and more or less sidelined. And the Guilt by Association Brigade are hard at it. This week, someone who I believe to be a man of great integrity, even though we disagree on a few things, has had his reputation attacked by highly opinionated and misleading propaganda disguised as journalism, as so much of modern mainstream journalism is. His name is David Pello, and he's the founder and head of the Good Source independent media platform on which this podcast and a lot of the discernible content is shared. David's a Christian and a conservative, not an unusual combination, and certainly nothing to be hugely concerned by. He cares deeply about society and the welfare of our children and works bloody hard with little financial benefit for his cause, something I greatly admire. But apparently being a Christian and being conservative or right-wing in Australia is automatically evil. Apparently we have to be wary of these people infiltrating politics as if their voice doesn't have a right to be heard or as if they'll somehow have some magic ability to drive their agenda better than any other interest group. In Nine Media's Sydney newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, this was how they viewed the Church and State Conference, an annual conference of conservative Christians held every year. The conference explores political activism, taking Christian values into the political arena. But apparently that's not allowed. That, the progressives claim, is because Australia is a secular nation and we have to divorce our political values from our spiritual values. How exactly do you do that anyway? And why are the left's religiously held passions like neo-Marxism and identity politics any more valid than any other person's Christian views? So let's go inside, shall we? Peel back the scary curtain of the evil conservative right-wingers and take a peek. Here's the terrifying content of the scariest of the scary. Conservative Christian. Uh, it's really important uh, that we as faith people, as Christians, uh, continue to advocate uh, for issues in the public space. Many people are convinced that Christianity is simply not true, that faith is lazy, anti-intellectual thinking, that Christianity is a delusion. And I want to tackle that head on. Our nation's kids are not okay. Almost half of our children under age 13 are experiencing some form of family fragmentation. Author Roy Williams has written 
that as a Christian, he's sick of the Christian influence in Australia being referred to as either minimal or malign. History tells us that this is not the case. I want to unpack and analyze critical race theory through a Christian biblical worldview. These photos are shocking and raw and real, and they're reaching people around the world on both sides of the fence. So what would it look like if we approach these policies that impact marriage, parenthood, even reproductive technologies through the eyes of a child? What would change? And what are other countries doing in this area? We must protect the family unit and support families, support Australians who want to start a family. But the role of defending our children does not simply lie with our legislators. What can we learn from those who've experienced this in the past? What is the best way to respond? And why does getting this right actually make a difference uh, in the wider aims of what we're trying to do to make Christ known uh, to our entire nation that we love? Oh my God, this is terrifying. These evil right-wing Christians are coming to take over the world. You know, I don't agree with some of what some of these guys think. Most of the people in that video don't agree with each other on everything. It's a conference. It's for discussing ideas. There's also a lot of left-wing Christians active in churches these days. My own Catholic church is full of them. We coexist fine because we know how to disagree respectfully. How on earth do the cancel culture kiddies think that we can build bridges and create unity and understanding if we shut down and demonize forums like this that seek to have discourse? Once again, Australia's left are very help happy to welcome free speech so long as it sticks to all the topics and views that they already agree with. These Christian right-wingers are not coming to take over the world. The vast majority of them are very nice, reasonable people. They're just coming to take a bigger slice of some of the public discourse. And that, I think, is what terrifies the mainstream media and the left and the bureaucratic ranks of Australia that are dominated by leftism. The quiet Australians, Christian or not, are getting more organised and they're getting louder. And therefore, they now must be villainised and stomped on. All that villainising and stomping, of course, only creates more polarisation. Stomping and ad hominem, that is, personal attacks on people who have different ideas to you, is extremely childish. Actually, it's the definition of immaturity and low emotional intelligence, or EQ. Which brings me to this, from the desperate, attention-seeking, man-hating sexist Clementine Ford. I won't call her a feminist, because that'd be to lump her in with a lot of quite good people. She is a sexist misandrist, and the worst thing that ever happened in the feminist movement. She's not part of the solution, she's part of the problem. Stirring up hate and rage based on gender. Tarring all men with the brush of the five in a million who rape, simply because of our shared gender. The very definition of sexism. But she is still widely applauded and admired. This was her Facebook post response to the Christian Porter rape allegation and his gut-wrenching denial last week. I am in a rage. I am in a rage over the rape apologism. A rage over the victim blaming. Hang on, Clem. No one is apologizing for rape, and hardly anyone is victim blaming. We're simply questioning whether there even was a victim. If he raped her, then he's a rapist and 100% responsible. She's a victim, and he is totally to blame, and that's that. But this is the question of an accusation that has come 33 years after the fact from a tragically mentally ill woman whose own parents said she was prone to embellishment and in her own writing said her memory was swirling. And it happened at a time when the accused was a 17-year-old child. Anyway, Clem goes on. A rage over the not-all-men deflection. Um, okay, on this one I have a very big issue. Men who don't rape and sexually assault women do not say not all men because they're trying to deflect anything. We say it because, oh, I don't know, it's the truth. We say it to call out your sexism, that you're making the illogical, deceptive and knowingly manipulative leap from most rapists to men, yes, to most men are rapists. No, 99.99% of men are not rapists, Clem. We push back like this because you're trying to make the problem about men. It's not. It's about rapists. 
Anyway, she goes on. A rage over the orchestrated doubt. A rage over the eagerness to manufacture motive for the supposed fabrication of a 30-year-old crime. Manufacture motive. Questioning the memory of a woman who's unwell about something that happened 33 years ago is not manufacturing motive. It's sane, balanced analysis of the situation. You do understand that bipolar disorder involves mania episodes, and that mania involves embellishment of reality, right? You understand that this woman's own parents said they didn't want her to go to the police because they couldn't be sure she wouldn't have embellished it? And do you understand the very well-documented phenomenon of false memory, Clem? That people over time can come to believe that things really did happen when they actually didn't. And we're talking about a political figure. So someone who has multiple enemies with lots of motive to encourage a false allegation of rape. At what point do we protect the accused's rights? According to Clem and her followers on Facebook, never. We must believe all women, as the wonderful Julia Baird said in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. We can all be in a rage, Clem. It's the habit of five-year-olds. And a significant majority of the women who populate your comment section on your Facebook page, I notice. You're living in an echo chamber, making money off the lowest common denominator type of thinking. You're not a good person, Clem. You don't seem to have the intellect to think broadly or deeply about these issues. And as I said, you're not part of the solution. The feminist movement and victims of sexual assault everywhere would be much better served. And we'd find solutions and allies faster if you would please keep your self-described foul mouth shut. The Guardian newspaper doesn't want to be outdone by Nine's Sydney Morning Herald in the woke abuse stakes. Here's Catherine Murphy, whose writing is usually left of left, outdoing herself on Twitter this week. Canberra's pale, stale and male tribe is missing the moment, she writes. Pale, stale and male. It rhymes, so I guess that makes it less ageist, racist and sexist. I don't know quite how to make this point, folks, but this kind of thing is a bit too common in Australia and it flies under the radar a lot. Pale. They're white or whitish, so they're bad because of the colour of their skin. Right. Okay. Gee, when I was a journalist, we called that racism. Probably because it's racism. Stale. I see. So if you're 52, like the Prime Minister, you're stale. That's really bad news for people like me who are older than the Prime Minister. So we don't respect life and work experience. We don't respect maturity or our elders anymore. That's good for society. That's terrific. We should go along swimmingly fighting off the influence of China if we have all the 30-year-olds in charge and making all the decisions. Who needs old people? They're dispensable. And finally, the greatest insult of all in Australia, male. I can't for the life of me understand why there'd be any pushback against modern feminists. It makes no sense. I did ask two of my female feminist friends, smart, sensible ones, to join us on the show to discuss the Christian Porter and the Brittany Higgins cases. Both of them have declined for good reasons and will hopefully be able to join us at a later time. So I'm stuck with my not-so-feminist, smart female mate, Carolyn DeRusso. Very good. Great <laughs> I know how to make my guests feel special, yeah? <laughs> Correct. You're the third choice. That's all right. I get it. <laughs> not really. Um... For those of you who don't know Carolyn, she's a, a corporate lawyer from Perth, a Sky News commentator uh, and a small businesswoman. So, Carolyn, um, are you in a rage like Clementine Ford at the moment? No, because I don't, I don't think being in a rage helps. No one ever said I got overly emotional about something and made a great series of decisions. So, no, I'm not, I'm not in a rage. I'm, I'm disappointed about a few things and I'm sad about a few things. Um, but I don't, I don't think rage helps and it certainly doesn't, um, it doesn't inform a conversation well. So this is really what I wanted to talk about because, um, you know, no, nobody wants to deny or can deny, uh, the statistics on, 
um, and I think we should look at some of the statistics on sexual assault. In 2019, there were 420 cases of homicide uh, like attempt and related uh, things like attempted murder and manslaughter in Australia. Two-thirds of the victims were men, uh, double the number of women. Um, and to put this into perspective, the United States has about 12 times our population, but 36 times the number of murders. So we're kind of doing an okay uh, doing okay in a weird way there. Uh, one third of them were family and domestic violence related, so 125 victims, of which only 36% of the victims were male, 64% were female. Um, we often hear the statistic that one woman per week dies in Australia from domestic violence, but in actual fact, it's 1.5, and one man per week dies from domestic violence in Australia, which is not a statistic we hear about. And that, I think, speaks to the core of the, the, the problem, right? I mean, why is it that we, we don't hear the full, the full story all the time? Uh, because I think, look, I think there's a, there is a narrative and, and you've got an issue of violence that it's, it's become a gendered issue. And it shouldn't be a gendered issue because, as you can see, I mean, one and a half is not good, but one is equally not good. We are not winning anywhere here. Um, and instead of it being about dealing with an issue front on, um, th this whole this whole narrative that we've come across of inclusive, inclusivity and diversity and feminism and what have you actually ends up being really exclusive. And you actually stop dealing with the issue itself and you only deal with part of it. And then, and then people wonder, you know, why um, you wonder why people are angry or wonder why people doubt the figures or, or anything like this. Um, and that's because it, it's not being dealt with fairly. It needs to be, it needs to be dealt with objectively and broadly, and in my view, not as not as a gendered issue. Yeah, I think. I mean, my view is that the Clementine Fords of the world, uh, and the the more and even moving towards the centre in the feminist movement today, I think, unlike the feminist movement when I was growing up, um, you've really got a lot of rage, a lot of hate that's just there for hate and rage's sake. Uh, you know, perhaps because of the women's studies courses and the neo-Marxism and all that stuff that we keep going on about and banging on about woke culture. But it's true, you know, that stuff's underlying uh, a whole culture or subculture um, that really is highly sexist at the moment. And I think, I don't know, but for me as a man, the Porter case was a real turning point because, well, not the Porter case, but the reaction to it, because with the Brittany Higgins case, I was like, yeah, you know, get the mongrel and string him up and let's have a police investigation, Brittany. Let's get, you know, and I'm glad she went to the police finally uh, and, and actually made a real complaint. Um, I didn't like the politicization of that case, but I think that there's potentially a, a case to answer there, obviously. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, you know, highly, I, I was going to say as a father of two daughters, but that's not allowed anymore. So I'll just say as a human being, I'm very uh, concerned about the crime of rape. But um, the Christian Porter thing and the way that people reacted to that in the feminist movement this week has really thrown me. Like I am, I have not, because I was pretty much a strong ally in the day and uh, I've come back to Australia after 20 years and it's a whole different, a whole different ball game. It is a whole different ball game. And, and it's even a whole different ball game from the point of view of being a woman. Um, because back in the day when we when we talk about feminism, it was about having equal opportunity to go to work and equal opportunity for pay and those sorts of things, which in, in a general sense, it's very hard to disagree with that kind of that level of of just fairness of egalitarianism. I don't, I don't think anyone has an issue with that. But you're right. It has morphed. Um, it has morphed into this man-hating, axe-grinding exercise. Um, and the, the problem with the, the, Me Too, the, the progress of the Me Too movement and the Believe All Women movement, and I'm not saying that when, when a woman raises an allegation of sexual assault that people sh think she's a liar or should think she's a liar. I don't, not at all. No one should ever think that. Everything should be dealt with as part of the process to be able to work through it. But the fact is, if you start at Believe All Women, very quickly that becomes, well, the other person is guilty because well, we can't disbelieve her means he did the wrong thing. That's just not how the criminal justice system works and that's not how it should work. Oh. And the sisterhood 
the sisterhood itself back in the day we talked about um uh women's liberation that women should be free that women should be able to do what they want now it's the sisterhood will tell you what you want and so the sisterhood has morphed from being here women take off your shackles off you go if that's the view that you want to take to well, we're your new master and if you don't do what we want you to do then you are the wrong type of woman and and that there that's where i have a real beef is that um women's liberation has just become you know your new master and um and then that there cascades um into further issues when you're talking about things like rape allegations like sexual assault if you're a woman that says okay well look she these allegations have been made they need to be tested or what have you then you become a rape apologist and that is rubbish yeah well that's what i found um myself being accused of in social media just for asking the question and for just for raising the point that you know, we have to have a justice system that has a presumption of innocence. Otherwise, anybody right. could be accused of anything at any time uh, and then have their career derailed. I don't know anything yeah. about Christian Porter or his past or his, his, his reputation or whatever, but he's the attorney general of this country and he mm. didn't get there by accident. He's obviously got yeah. skills and he's got ability and he's got capability. He's got a career and he's earned his way to the top like everybody else has had to work like a dog. And most politicians do work like a dog especially yeah. in the ministry. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm going to give him the assumption and the presumption that he's earned his place, that he deserves our respect. Uh, and when he comes forward as he did with what felt to me like one of the most genuine, uh, and I, I, look, you know, I work in the space of, worked in the space of preparing people for crisis news conferences and things like that. Um, and, and I never, ever say to anybody or would ever say to anybody, go out there and fake it. Because you no. can't. You'd have to be Bill Clinton or better than Bill Clinton because he couldn't even fake it, right, to get away with something like that. Um, yeah. or, maybe, or maybe an actress. Uh, one springs to mind at the moment, but I won't go there because we'll talk about it all day and I've promised a, a Harry and Meghan free zone today. So, um, But, uh, you know, if you go out there and you, you perform, uh, you know, people notice that you're performing. That was a genuine... I put all my professional experience and expertise on looking at that and analysing and saying that man was being genuine, right? Now, I don't know what happened 33 years ago. I'd be surprised if Christian Porter can remember what happened 33 years ago. I can't remember what I did 33 years ago. I don't know about you. But you'd certainly remember it if you committed a crime, I suppose, of that seriousness, if you perceived it as a crime at the time. And these human interactions in, you know, God knows what happened or how it happened or where it happened. And we're talking about somebody who, unfortunately and very sadly, has a mental illness. But the reality of that mental illness is that, you know, bipolar disorder involves mania. Mania involves, um, you know, embellishment and, and, you know, distorted perceptions of reality. Her own parents said you know, look, we can't, um, we don't recommend her to, to go forward to the police and told her not to because they couldn't be sure that they, that she wouldn't embellish things. And one of her own writings, she talked about, you know, the swirling images in her mind or something, you know, I mean, it's sad, it's tragic, it's awful, it's horrible, it's a terribly gut-wrenching story. But the reality is, this was a woman with a mental illness. And in terms of reasonable doubt, uh, I think it was the New South Wales Police Commissioner who said that, that just, you know, even if she was still alive and even if, you know, they could investigate, the chances of this getting to court would be would be zero. So why are we even talking about it is my question. Right. Well, the first thing, and just by way of disclosure, I'm a, I'm a member of the Liberal Party in WA. I sit on state council. I don't think I've ever met Christian Porter, so I don't I don't have a relationship with him personally. But I think that's important just to put that to us one side because people tend to get really upset when you don't disclose things like that. Oh, that's it's fine. Like, and you've got an election coming up this weekend, which I'm going to ask you about I've later. Got an election I get this it. Weekend, uh, so. It's not a crime to be a member of the Liberal Party on this uh, on this no, show. So go not ahead. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Give it time. Give it time. Um, it, this is an incredibly difficult case, but there is one word that the um, that was used by the police commissioner and that was used when um, New South Wales police uh, initially closed the investigation. And there's one word in this that's really important and that word is admissible, which no one seems to want to talk about the word admissible. So 
Unfortunately, the lady at the centre of these allegations is no longer with us, right? And that makes her first-hand evidence absolutely, well, it's just not possible. There is no way that she can get in a stand and give her evidence. There's no way that she can be cross-examined. What that also means is then a lot of the information in and around um, these allegations, you know, letters from friends and what have you, they're, they're likely not to be admissible as evidence because they're, they're secondhand accounts and what have you. So they can, be, they can be admissible, say, for example, of the letter being written and the contents of the letter, but not as to the veracity of those comments. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I sat and watched the press conference and I heard these allegations, but you don't know where they came from. So I understand right. there was a, a, sw- uh, a unsworn statement that she'd written a statement, but I don't know watching that press conference where all these allegations came from. And I think that makes it very difficult for the public to be able to form a view as to um, the veracity of the claims or how, or how, maybe how, just how compelling those claims are when you don't actually know where any of this information came from. Well, I and think I it's impossible. It's impossible for the public to make to form a view, and the public likes to form views and compa- yep. compartmentalize things. But sometimes we just have to say, "Look, we don't know," and under oh. our legal system, that's it. You know, you, if you don't know, and, and that's you, you can't convict that's a guy. That's the point. Or a woman. is you get to the point where you're like, "Okay, all these things were allegedly said and, and what have you," but there's no way of testing them. I heard and, one reporter. And, I don't know who it was in that press conference say to Porter. Um, You've said this, but in the court of public opinion, you must satisfy oh, the court of public please. opinion. Um, please. It's nonsense. Look, you're a lawyer. I'm a PR consultant. I, the, mm. the court of public opinion is a construct of the PR industry. We developed that phrase in order to make a distinguishment between the courts of law, which are rational and require mm. standards of evidence, thank God, and the court of public opinion, which is grossly irrational, highly emotional, uh, illogical, uh, mob rule oriented, uh, doesn't have any rules of evidence, is slanderous. It's not a court to be respected and honoured. It's a court that you have to deal with. Um, so no. using it, saying in a press conference, oh, but the court of public opinion is if the, the court, there's a courthouse of public opinion or something, it's, it's is exactly. hilarious and ridiculous. And just because really. it's BYO pitchfork doesn't mean yeah, right. that it's something to be um, that the. the, the, the that the that people in the public should go. Oh well, the court of a public opinion, you know, thought this. Therefore, I mean, it's that's again one of those reasons why. Say, for example, in very high-profile criminal trials, we have trials without a jury. Right in Western Australia, the Lloyd Rainey case was a great example of. Um, you know, it's almost impossible to find twelve people who who don't have an opinion. Uh, about Lloyd Rainey and therefore if people have already got preconceived ideas then that there is is prejudicial to a fair trial. Yeah these are not new ideas in the law they're ideas that have been explored through history and that we know exists and that have been taken care of by the law thankfully. I'm being joined today by Carolyn DeRusso lawyer businesswoman and commentator Caroline, this is a long interview for our show, but I I want to keep chatting because it's such an important issue for our nation right now. So we'll take a break for a little while and we'll come back later on in the show to take a look at the Brittany Higgins case, how it's different from the Porter allegations, and the question of sexual harassment in the workplace more generally. All that a little bit later in today's The Other Side Australia. For those of you watching or listening to the show for the first time, just a reminder that we are on all podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple and iHeartRadio. But if you like to watch us, the best place to do so is on the Discernible platform at discernible.io. That's discernible with an A and it's .io, not .com.au or anything like that. And while you're there, please subscribe and sign up to be a part of the Discernible crew. So you can get alerted by email about all our content like the People's Project and Matthew's interviews and Josh's fantastic worldview series. Lots and lots of content. Discernible is also on YouTube and Facebook. We're also shared across the Good Source platform. That's S-A-U-C-E, another great platform for independent conservative content. So there's no need to consume the garbage on TV and the old media anymore, folks. This is, uh, this is the place. There's plenty of good stuff for you right here if you want to be treated like you've got a brain for a change.
Well, some really great news this week for those of us on the centre-right and right of politics. Former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson, has announced that he's going to run for the Senate in New South Wales on the National Party ticket at the next election. Mr Anderson has a YouTube interview channel called Conversations with John Anderson, which has in the past been a source of some of our stories on this show. He says he wants to offer from the backbench his accumulated life experiences, his long period in politics, and the knowledge gained from speaking to dozens of the world's greatest thinkers on his podcast. The 64-year-old says he doesn't want to be on the front bench. He wants to be there to mentor and guide his colleagues and to contribute from an intellectual perspective late in life. He told Sky News' Chris Kenny he definitely doesn't want a cabinet position. Uh, That's not my objective, Chris. It honestly isn't. Uh, I have had my opportunities. My desire is to use the platform as a member of the Senate to the very best of my ability to mount cogent debates based around the evidence, argue against personality politics and identity politics, and to seek to do everything I could to create space for the government in these difficult times when a lot of people have, I think, some pretty loopy ideas that we can go on printing money forever, we can go on spending forever, we don't need to prepare for tomorrow, we do need to prepare for tomorrow. And that's where the debate ought to be. And it ought to centre on the things that we all have in common as Australians and end this terrible poison of divisive identity politics that so cripples our ability to find our way ahead as Australians together. Well, John, uh, we've spoken on air and off air about how frustrated you've been with all of this. So congratulations to you for having another crack and we'll see where it all ends up next month. That's former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson speaking with Sky News' Chris Kenny. I really think this is what we need the Senate to become, a chamber of elders, like a democratic version of the UK's House of Lords. I'd support a minimum age of 50 and a prerequisite of some substantial lifetime achievement to run in the Senate. But we don't need rules or a rule change. We don't need a Senate full of inexperienced kids and nutters from the Greens or other crazy radical parties, either left or right. We can already decide to change, simply by only voting for people who have good life experience in business or any field of service. We can already choose. But we have to get the right candidates up through the party systems which are failing us. And this means we all need to get more involved at a grassroots level in whatever party we choose, rather than just voting on election day. International Women's Day was this past Monday. Our culture is full of support for women these days. We need a bit more support for men. We really do. I know we have International Men's Day on November 19, but it doesn't get anywhere near the coverage and community support that IWD does. In fact, a friend told me this week that IMD isn't even recognised by the United Nations as an official one of its days. I didn't believe him, so I checked it out. He's right. This is the UN calendar of official commemorative weeks and days. November 19 is, in fact, for those of you listening on the podcast version, World Toilet Day. So not only does International Men's Day not get a Guernsey from the United Nations, we're competing with the Thunderbox. At least men know where we stand in today's culture. Back to our special guest this week, helping me to discuss the issues of feminism in Australia, sexual harassment in the workplace, and the dangers of a culture that doesn't respect the presumption of innocence, is lawyer and commentator Carolyn DeRusso. Carolyn, I want to move on to talking about the Brittany Higgins case. Um, This is a very different situation to the Christian Porter case in that there seems to be an admissible level of evidence and a sound prima facie case at least, and the federal police are now investigating, thankfully. But a commonality between the two cases first is that they've both been hugely politicised. It seems to be becoming uh, an all too common aspect of our political activity in Australia, this muckraking and politicisation of sexual assault cases. How much do you think, as someone who's involved in politics, that there's a real problem within the federal and state parliamentary workplaces? Or is all this just a Louise Milligan Four Corners ABC left wing construct? couple of things there. So um, 
the politicisation of this issue makes it harder for victims of sexual assault to go to the police because, say, for example, if something happened to me, I'd want to be able to go to the police, make a statement and have it dealt with, you know, just objectively dealt with. I wouldn't want my life being thrown across, you know, both sides of, of a House of Parliament. Like, I would just, I, I don't know if I would be able to cope with that. You know, these people have, have already suffered a trauma. Um, they don't need um, it to be the subject of political muckraking. And, and, I, and I do really worry that the politicisation and just so much angst in the media about sexual abuse, um, I, I'm, I'm worried that it will stop women going forward or people going forward, because obviously men can suffer sexual abuse. Um, and these things are properly and rightly dealt with by the police. And I think that that is the most important thing because I imagine it would be very, very stressful um, to just see your name in the media all the time when, when all you've tried to do is, is, is be in search of some justice. I think, that's, um, I think that would be incredibly stressful and essentially a trauma upon a trauma. As far as the Liberal Party goes myself, I haven't experienced any kind of sexism or sexual harassment or anything like that. Frankly, I would like someone to try and see what happens to them, right? But um, I've never experienced it. doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yes, politics is robust. Public life in general is robust. But you can be robust and respectful. But I'm sure it happens in all political parties. You can't tell me that this is just a Liberal Party problem. Well, I mean, the difference between the way the media have treated the Shorten case in 2014 when Bill came out and said, look, this is just nonsense and it never happened and the police have investigated and cleared it but all. But that's a reflection on the media. That's yeah. not a reflection on anyone else. No, no, it's not. It's, it's definitely a reflection on the media and it's, it's disgraceful and the culture um, that, that, that you could have. I mean, they did the right thing in that, in that, at that time by not yeah. overblowing right. it too much and paying some right. respect to due process and the rule of law and the presumption of innocence. They're not doing it this time. Um, and, and that, to me, shows incredible partisanship on the part of the mainstream media that is just absolutely undeniable. Um, there's no sympathy whatsoever uh, coming through um, for Porter. And if there is any sympathy coming through for Porter, it's, well, you're defending a rapist. Well, hang on a minute, he's not a rapist. He hasn't been convicted of anything. There's a wild allegation out there, which is highly questionable. Um, so, so settle down. Which brings me back to the cultural, wider cultural debate. I put out a post on Twitter um, asking, and I was seeking responses from my conservative Australian uh, female friends about what their experience was of, of sexual harassment in the workplace, because almost every woman I know has got a story of sexual harassment in the workplace. And I wanted to test it out and see, you know, what, what other people thought. It got, unfortunately, bombarded by uh, Americans and, and it went viral and went into the left uh, loony land. So yep. it didn't really yep. achieve the goal. But... There were a lot of women. I mean, almost all um, have a tale to tell. What is going on? Where are we at? And what do you think the uh, what do you think men? I'll just point blank. I mean, what do men need to do? I don't believe that we should tar all men uh, because even if most women have an experience of being harassed, it doesn't mean that all men are harassers. It means that one guy might be harassing twenty women, and now the nineteen guys are not doing anything. Um, right. But let's just be be fair about it. I mean, what should a what should a guy do? Um, uh, you know, in in terms of how how you would feel in a workplace if if something happened. What I'd be really interesting to know is when um, these incidents are said to have occurred. So I have worked at a firm where um, allegations of um, uh, sexual harassment were made by more than one woman in relation to a partner. And he was removed from partnership very quickly. And right. that there is a health and safety issue. And that was okay. the earlier part of the, the century, right? That was early oh, the, oh, this um, I think this incident occurred around 2015. It, this was oh, sorry. later in okay. my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're this incredibly, you're too, career, you're too young sorry. for that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, <laughs> I'm so kicking I goals this today with the compliments, yeah, aren't I? Yeah, you are. <laughs> 
what what went on in the the 60s 70s 80s 90s are probably a bit different but as far as my experience is i have found that firms generally tend to deal with those things um i again i haven't i haven't experienced that in the workplace i i have to say um all my greatest supporters all the people who encouraged me in my career were all men you know all those horrible middle-aged white men who you know, gave me really great work to do and really great opportunities, and and that they, um, I, I'm incredibly yeah, grateful people. to them. So they 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 were yeah. fabulous, um, and and all the people who who always needed to have a snigger or a critique or whatever were, were usually the women, and um, and I think that's that's actually incredibly sad. And as I got more senior, I made a a real. Um, I made a real note to myself to to not be that sort of woman. It really is up to everyone who is involved in whether it's corporate life or political life. If you see something that you think is unacceptable, call it out. It's all of our responsibility. Yeah. You know, just don't take any rubbish. And yeah. and you have a lot more integrity and people have a lot more respect for you if you just stand up and call out the BS. But people are, people don't want to do that because they don't want to ruffle feathers. Well, if you if you stand by and watch while it happens, you're part of the problem. I do sympathise though with that position. I mean, if you're in a in an in an, an organisation, some of the newsrooms that I worked in uh, when I was young were brutal environments. Yeah. And um, you know, you probably still experience that in the law. Uh, but it's 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 quite. There's a lot of bullying that goes on. There's a lot of, uh, well, there was in those days. Um, and we, we sort of just had to suck it up and go with it. Um, if you did call any of it out, you probably would have suffered some consequences. And I think for a lot of women, in uh, particularly young women, uh, in, I've worked in environments in Asia where there are a lot of older men in, uh, in public relations. You have a lot of young women and, and older men in management. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was I was always doing the best I could to promote um, promote the interests of my female leadership in particular. Um, I was way terrified of being alone or being left alone or being in an office alone or anything with a, with a with a female junior colleague, and I would do everything to avoid that situation. But there were men around me that were uh, not many, but there were one or two who were behaving outrageously and getting away with it. And I just wonder how much of that was consensual. And how much of it was, um, you know, fear that if I don't go along with this, that this, this, you know, this guy could really impact my career. And I just, I can't, I can't understand. I just, I don't understand how that sort of thing goes on in the workplace. I know that it does, but it is unacceptable. I would like to think that as we go along that, and those attitudes change, that that is going to happen less and less. But to the point, I of think being it is. I think the men, those kind female. of men, have got the message now, right? Yeah, I think they do. I think they do because I hope so. you know there has been there has been um, some pretty high profile cases where those those sort you know the tide has gone out and and it has not ended well for those sorts of men and that's and that's fine if you do the wrong thing um, you should be responsible for it there should be for a sure. due process but you should be responsible for it but the amount of men that I know who, to your point about being alone with a woman, refuse to be alone with a female colleague mm. just because they are terrified that an allegation is going to be made against them. Yeah. Um, and, and this is it's something that has been said to me, not on one or two occasions, but I have heard men say that on so many occasions uh, because they can't leave themselves open. Then, then the question comes back to, okay, one out of the 20 men is the problem. You've got the other 19 who don't want to be left alone with a, in, alone with a female colleague. Well, then to what extent, and perhaps unfairly and probably a bit unfairly, is that going to start impacting the career progression of women? If we talk about that, yeah, you know, when the men first started saying, "Well, I'm not going to mentor girls, women, young women anymore," and I, I, I wouldn't do it. I got to tell you, um, I'm not in the corporate world. I, I would find it very difficult to be in the corporate world or in politics. And we desperately need smart men in politics at the moment, smart people generally. Uh, and how many people have just been turned off by that Christian Porter experience? God knows uh, how many good people have been turned off by it. Um, 
But I think that, yeah, your point is right because it's that contradiction of, you know, we're strong, women are strong, women are powerful, women are able to take care of themselves versus women are always the victim, right? It's, it's a disconnect in the feminist or the modern feminist argument. Correct. Would you, would you agree or am I being a sexist pig then? No, no, no. No, <laughs> no you're not being a sexist. It's, it's unfortunately these things never really sit flush. You know, sometimes when you're trying to fix one problem, you overcorrect and you end up creating another problem. And I think this is where, um, this is where the rational mind needs to prevail. If you were taught a good value system, the difference between right and wrong and hard work and fairness and respect and decency and integrity, that deals with these issues. Yeah. Right? And from and the boys' perspective? Those role models. From the boys' perspective as a father too, Carolyn, you know, as a father, uh, I don't want to be teaching, I don't have sons, but if I did, I wouldn't want to be teaching them you know, oh, listen, you know, it's the wrong thing to do to, you know, rape a girl, by the way, just in yeah. case you didn't know. I'd rather be teaching them when you're with a woman, treat mm. that woman as a human being with a soul, with respect, honor her and make sex a sacred thing rather yeah. than a cheap, you know, piece of meat debasement that we see in our culture all the time. And, it, and it, it's, you know, it's, Everything is going to be different in every family. Um, but equally for women, I think the thing that really upsets me about the sisterhood is that that victimhood mentality. I mean, my dad taught me how to change a tyre. My dad taught me how to, how to budget. My dad taught me how to read the stock market. You know, all those sorts of things that... You know, if you can teach your children to be all-rounders, you can teach... If you can teach your daughters to make smart financial decisions, right? There are, it's a lot harder to, um, to victimise a woman. It's a lot harder to, um, to oppress a woman if she's got her own money. When I was little, and even sometimes if my dad's in Perth when, you know, when I've been older and I'm leaving for work, the last thing my father always says to me is give them hell. <laughs> I <love> right? <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's not, and that's not for me to do anything bad or whatever. But it just—he always sharpens my focus to always try and do the right thing, and and don't let anyone take advantage of you. You can be a nice person without being taken advantage of. And in terms of raising boys, it's it's about we need to bring back some of the chivalry stuff, some of the white knight stuff, some of the heroic archetypes that men have traditionally grown up with where they are the protector provider maybe not so much the provider these days but the protector thing can certainly be there it's those sort of little everyday interactions between men and women which you're right years of evolution have kind of refined and and i mean there has to be something to say for that um, yeah, we're not just without obviously, obviously falling of the edge of um, you know women are livestock. I mean, we don't have to, we don't have to go that far. No, wish someone to tell Cardi B. But thank you very, very much for your time, Carolyn. Great to talk to you as always. Um, Anytime, love to have you back on the show sometime soon. This our fifteen minute interview went half an hour, so Matthew will be tearing his hair out at me. But uh, <laughs> but I think it's Sorry, I think it's Matthew. been a great discussion, and it's certainly a necessary discussion that has to be had. Uh, and I think, I hope people, you know, got something out of uh, the ideas we were tossing around today. But thanks again for your time. Anytime. Time now for our weekly educational segment on liberalism. We live in a culture of great prosperity, unprecedented justice, peace and individual liberty, liberty and rights. All of this has come about because of Western liberalism and free market economics, and the many positive aspects of capitalism. Yet we're living in a culture that thinks it's cool and enlightened, strangely enough, to hate all of that. We view our history and achievements as barbarism. Capitalism and free markets are somehow evil, and we reject the religious and philosophical underpinnings on which our unprecedented culture was based. Dr. Victor David Hansen, Davis Hansen rather, is a well-known American classicist, military historian, columnist, and speaker. He gave a speech only a few months ago 
at a top high school in Florida, where he examined the demise of classical education, the recovery of Greek wisdom, and its significance for us today. It's a very difficult time to be alive. I have a lot of empathy for people who get up every morning and they go out there and they're undaunted. But what is most upsetting is this civilization that gives us such freedom, such material bounty, security, luxury, and then it creates such disdain for it. It was almost as if, well, we want all of the bounties of this civilization. We want all of these golden eggs and we want to strangle this goose. And I'd like to suggest to you in the next 10 minutes, that's, that's the only reassuring thing that's not new. And it's caught up in the contradictions of our very civilization. So what we call the West is just, why wasn't the East? Because the Greeks had no problem about being ethnocentric. Seventh and eighth century BC, they got up in the morning and they said everything they noticed that seems to set where the sun was, everything over there was like them and everything where the sun rises, the Oriens or the Orient was different. They decided the world was them versus Persia. And the Occidentals were the Occidentals where the sun set in the West was a different culture. They were pretty prescient. And so out of nowhere, about 800 BC, we had these 1500 city-states, only about a million and a half people and 50,000 square miles, very small place. They were tried to be strangled by the Persians that had a kingdom of 30 million people and could not. And these 1500 city-states started to reject all of the contemporary premises, the dynastic civilizations in Egypt, the birth of civilization in the Near East, the tribal cultures of Europe, nothing to do with race. My ancestors in Sweden were killing each other and doing all sorts of things the Greeks would have thought barbaric. And out of this culture, they started to have a system of law, inheritance. I think you could say that constitutional government was birthed in Greece around 750, not for equality, not for freedom, but for the protection of property and to be able to hand it down without government interference to your family. Something we take for granted, but that was the spark that made people uh, create these constitutional governments. And then the rest followed over the next 150 years. Consensual government, rule of law rather than people. Free market economies, very primitive, but still free market and private property. Rationalism, the ability to explain natural phenomenon without resort to superstition or religion. Didn't mean that they weren't religious, they just said there's an element that we can't explain scientifically, that's mystery. It's a good Greek word. But the rest of the world, why the sun comes up in a certain way and sets in a certain way, the stars, why, what's water and earth, and all of that can be explained without superstition. And for a country that was very close to starvation, it was always one harvest away from annihilation, they were very enlightened. We say, well, we're a sexist civilization. Compared to what? Compared to Egypt? Compared to the Goths? I mean, if you look at the titles of plays in Greece, the Antigone, the Helen, the Andromache, the Trojan women, they're, they're heroes. Lysistrata. So they were already talking about the equality of the sexes. You say, well, they had slavery. Every society in the world had slavery. Nobody at this time had anybody like Alcadamus who said, no man is born a slave. And that was a topic of intense debate. And then there was this idea of self-criticism. We'll get back to that later. But you had the right to critique the very system you created without fear of retribution. Now, this was not set in stone. There were revolutions. There were people who tried to destroy it. But that was the contribution to the West from Greece. When Rome took over, because they had no word in their vocabulary, natio, the equivalent in Greek, there was no nationhood. How can you preserve a civilization when there's 1,500 city-states? You can do it if you're Alexander the Great, but you have to destroy freedom in the process. He didn't destroy all of West, but Rome took over the Mediterranean, and they added to this menu, this formula. And one of the things they did was create a tripart system of government. And this is very important because our founders did not want an Athenian-style democracy 
where on any given day the assembly could do whatever they wanted when 51% of the people said, let's kill all the Middleanians today, they've been bad. And then they said, yeah, it's a good idea. They got up the next morning and said, that was kind of extreme. I'm quoting basically Thucydides. So the next morning they got up and said, let's not kill them. They said, well, we already sent the ship out. <laughs> so I said, well, we'll give volunteers and give them free food and a bonus. Maybe. And we have this great scene in the history where they're all got their necks ready to be cut. And somebody comes in and says, stop, just cut 1,500 necks, not everybody. And so that's what scared the Romans. So they had a tripart system, two consuls and executive and then they had tribal assemblies, a lower house, and the Senate, same as ours, Senate. And uh, then they had tribunals that were a judiciary, very influential on Montesquieu and the French Enlightenment. And they codified law, and they had basic, in other words, they took the spirit of the Greeks, and they said it doesn't work, it doesn't apply to every day. What happens if you're arrested? You, you have to have habeas corpus. And most of our law today is Latinate, not Greek, because the Romans were wonderful codifiers. Dr. Hansen goes on to explain that there was a final component to the Romans' additions to Greek forms of government. They changed classical morality, the idea that you be no better friend and no worse enemy, and they replaced it with the revolutionary idea of turning the other cheek. And so when we look at the critiques of the West, it goes something like this, and th this goes back to Greek critics, Thucydides is very critical of democracy, Tacitus, Petronius the novelist, Suetonius the biographer, they had very tough things to say about Roman civilization, and they all said, you create so much bounty with free market capitalism, so much competition, and the good envy, not just the bad envy, but the envy of emulation that makes people want to excel, you create excess, they called it luxus, or word for luxury, and you give the people so much protected liberty and freedom, and a lot of the, I call them the nihilistic tradition, and you know it really took hold in Germany with Oswald Spangler or Nietzsche or Hegel. They said the problem with the West is when you're very free and you're very wealthy, you're very successful. It's not its failure. I mean, after all, Ask yourself, in 480, just 17 city-states were left. They had an army no longer bigger than 50,000 people, and they defeated 400,000 Persians coming from the north at Salamis and Plataea. Fast forward 150 years later, and now they're much wealthier. They have a much larger army and navy in the fourth century, and they can't stop 30,000 mot mot 30, motley northerners under Philip of Macedon, and they lost their freedom lost their freedom because they took it for granted and they didn't understand where it came from. And all the wealth in the world couldn't save their civilization. Dr. Hansen says something happened in the interim and we need to be careful because the parallels today are clear. We're the wealthiest generation in civilization's history. We're the freest we can do almost anything we want next to technology. But how in the West, when you have all of those choices and liabilities, what prevents people from going out and saying, you know, fry pigs in a blanket or trying to attack a police thing or throwing a Molotov cocktail in a, in a thing or, you know, putting just the most deplorable pornography on the Internet? or attacking a Christian for his, what stops a person from doing that in the West? It's legal. You have the money and the time to do it. One of the things that was so striking about all of these BLM and Antifa demonstrations that everybody would say to them, do they have to work? How can they, do they, no, they don't. There's enough bounty. What Milton Friedman once said, yeah, the country's going to hell, but there's a lot of rot in this country. <laughs> And I think he was channeling something that uh, Adam Smith said. There's a lot of rotten capitalism that when people say it can't go on, it does go on more than you think. We're a lot more successful than we think. And we have a lot of people who died and created a lot of institutions and protocols and uh, histories for us to follow. And they're still, they're dead, but that fumes from their lives are still there. So it takes a lot to destroy it. We're doing our best, but it's, it's taking a lot longer than the destroyers want. And so the anecdote to that was, 
traditionally in the West, there was an anecdote. Plato talked about it. Aristotle talked about it. Thucydides implied it. Tacitus was so he, he, very, and of course the New Testament. And the anecdote was you don't really have to do what you're legally able or financially or economically able to do. And you don't have to do that because you have pressures. You have pressures. You don't want to disgrace your parents or your grandparents or your family name or you belong to a, a religion, Christianity. And Christianity says, you know, what you do in this world, you have a soul. You may not think you have a soul, but you do have a soul. And there is going to be a reckoning in hereafter. So don't do what you're capable of doing. Don't harm other people. Don't harm your soul. And there's also a community. And you don't want to be disgraced. We're talking about a shame culture rather than a guilt culture. Rather than private guilt alone, we had a shame culture in the West. And so traditions, family, religion, community, all of these things, and also public pressures. So if you made money and you, you were very successful, people, we said, we're, we're not going to have the government take it from you. There had been efforts to do so in Greece and Rome and in the Middle Ages through this, this project I talked about, went into Europe in the Middle Ages, and then we had the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, Reformation, and then the American, French Revolution, American Revolution. But through all this period, we rejected the idea the government can take what you, what you created and say it's own, that you owe it to someone else. There was always an equality of opportunity and not an equality of result. But incumbent on the equality of opportunity that individuals could make better decisions how to help people than the government could. And so all of those together restrained human behavior. And what's happened now is I think what's, we have created so much leisure and so much capital and so much affluence that what we call poor today is richer than any time in the history of the world. I was talking to a guy not too long ago at um, Walmart in Selma, and he was, got out of his car in a brand new Kia. And he was very proud. He'd come from Mexico, and he was showing me all the things on a Kia. And I said, you know, everything on that car has more than a Mercedes did 15 years ago. And then I said, I pulled out my iPhone, and I said, I have more power over the world or more information about it than a person with a mainframe IBM that was a billionaire. And so we don't we forget just how much the individual has at his fingertips. And so it's very incumbent that we have these bridles, that we don't abuse it. And we're losing them. And why are we losing them? That's what Victor Davis Hanson, American classicist, military historian, columnist and speaker, reveals in the next 20 minutes of his talk. The link to that is in our program notes, as always. Well worth listening to the rest if you have time. It is absolutely terrific. Time for our comedy segment, and this week, back to the crazy world of US comedian J.P. Sears, who has discovered LinkedIn and Coca-Cola's anti-racism training. I hate white people. And after I took Coca-Cola's anti-racism training, I became really inspired to help make the world a better place by teaching people how to be less white. All white people are racist. I'm not a racist. Being unwilling to see that you're racist is a sign of racism. I don't know, I love black people. <laughs> Loving black people is just another sign of racism. Your white fragility keeps you from seeing it. You're oppressing me. How am I oppressing you? What's this? What color is that, huh? You see, there's no question that systemic racism has created oppression of minorities in our country. So the way to help them rise up is by squashing these people over here. And then you have equality, as you can see. It's kind of like if someone falls down, the best way to help them up is to run over and lay down next to them. After studying Robin DiAngelo's work, I learned only white people can solve problems for minorities. Because minorities are too weak, so they need the superiority from white people to help them rise up from the oppression caused by white people thinking they're superior to them. The definition of racism is discrimination or prejudice based on race. And our definition of anti-racism is the same. So this is what we're doing because we want to solve this problem. 
Does that make sense? That's JPC is a very funny man. You can watch that whole sketch on the link in our program notes and all of his very funny work on JPC's YouTube page. And that is it for another week of The Other Side Australia. Don't forget to subscribe everywhere. And if you want to support us, tell your friends. If you'd like to sponsor the show or any of the discernible shows, do get in touch with us. See you next week on the discernible platform at discernible.io. That's discernible with an A. Sign up to the crew, remember, for an early for early info and premium content. Uh, or you can check us out at Discernable on YouTube and Facebook, The Other Side Australia on Apple and Spotify podcast platforms for audio only, and The Good Source platform, that's Source, S-A-U-C-E. We'll catch you next week. And in the meantime, don't let the woke kids get you down.